Amen. Well, you guys can go ahead and have a seat. So good to be back. Last week, I was preaching for a friend of mine, Matt McCarthy, in a high point, uh, North Carolina, and it was great to be there with him and see what God is doing there. But it's like this week, when we were uh, setting up the chairs, I believe it was Wednesday evening, I just I can't wait to be back and preach in my own church. And so it's good to be back here this morning uh, with you all, like and I was in the South, so with y'all, but... Um, it was, it's so good to be here this morning with you. You know, one of the things that um, I would just love to encourage you, if you are new, if you've only been here like a month or two months and you've never really met my, myself, some of the other staff, I just want to invite you after the second service. I know it's a first service, but after the second service, immediately over in, uh, we call it D12, but it's a room across uh, the way, uh, there's a little time where you can, uh, we would just love to share a little bit about the church and just more of an opportunity for you to get to meet myself, some of the other staff, um, I'm my wife. Um, and we'll just share a little bit about the church. There'll be a, just a very a quick meal of uh, pizza, and, um, but it's not, well, never mind. I was going to throw a pizza place under the bus, but I felt her caught that. I was going to say, but it's not this pizza, but, it's, but we just won't do that this morning. It's bad when your filter's having trouble right out the gate. Right, right away, you know, oh boy. Uh, but so we'd just love to have you. I know it's the first service, stick around, go get some coffee, come sit at the second service, because the second service, you just, like, it's not the same. Both services aren't the same, so you never know what you're going to get. You know, one of the things is we preach through the book, like, we're preaching through Ephesians right now, and today will be Ephesians uh, chapter 2, verse 8 through 9. And I would, I would just say that Ephesians chapter 1, and the first 10 verses of chapter 2, especially Ephesians 1, is some very, um, brings up some things within the church that, that want to cause a lot of debate. Um, some doctrinal, it deals with some really direct doctrinal issues. And um, what I would submit to you, and, and I know that whenever we preach a, a section of scripture like that, it's going to cause a stir. Okay, I know that. Like, like, you don't preach Ephesians 1 if you want your church to get bigger, like, you know, like, because you know it's going to weed through some things. And, but here's what I want to submit to you this morning. As we preach through things that are doctrinal, allow the scripture to have its say. Just allow the scripture to have its say. Don't, don't bring your preconceived ideas, don't bring systems into your interpretation of scripture. Does that make sense? There's, there's like, especially when it comes to the doctrines of grace, there's kind of two strong positions. You know, one people would call Calvinism, another one people would call Arminianism. But the reality, the problem with those two terms are they're just both men. And, and that, that, that we're good men. Both of those guys were good men, but they're, they're, they, it's a system. So we're not something that is someone else's last name. Does that make sense? Like, that's not who we are. Like, we're Bible-believing Christians. And so when you get to these things, like the doctrine of election and the free will of man, like, they're, they're, like just allow Scripture to have its say. Just let it have its say. But what happens so often is we allow our experiences or a family member we have and whether or not they've accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ, whether or not they've rejected it, to then 
inform how we think theologically. Does that make sense? I'll give you a case in point. One of the areas that, like, right now in culture and society, especially in Western culture, um, you know, the, the LGBTQ community. Okay, so within the church, there is a tendency for people who are Bible-believing Christians to capitulate to the demands of culture if they know someone or have a family member that struggles with same-sex attraction. Does that make sense? Now, if that is happening and shaping your doctrinal position, you ought to see that as very problematic. Why? Because now you're allowing your experience and what you want to be true to inform how you interpret the Word of God. And what you end up doing is creating a God of your own imagination, which is no God at all. Does that make sense? And so even when it comes to the doctrine of election, the doctrine of free will of man, like all, all of those things and the tension that lies there, and I clearly said there is a tension, but the weight of Scripture clearly leans one way. So just let Scripture have its say. Does that make sense? Uh, because it's not about a system, it's not about a man, it's not about a position, it's about the Bible and what does God's Word say. Now, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 10, I, I would submit to you those 10 verses could quite possibly be some of the most, if not the most important verses in the Bible. And today, a passage that we're going to be in, verse 8, 9, and 10, one that most of us have heard over and over and over again. But I believe because we've heard it over and over and over again, it can lose the gravity and the weight of what it's actually saying. But it's talking about God's amazing grace. And this salvation is a gift. Now, we're approaching Christmas. It's gift giving. It's coming into gift giving season. And um, uh, like, there's, there's my family, we love giving gifts. We love those things. I love receiving gifts. I love giving them. But the best gifts are the gifts that keep giving, right? It's a gift that you get that now... You know, last Christmas, it was like a week before Christmas, and there was a lady in our church, like, I asked her how everything was coming together. She said, I just don't know what to get for my husband. I'm going to help you out, ladies. I'm going to help you out, guys. I said, does he like guns? Yes, he likes guns. I said, well, then every Christmas, just get him a gun. <laughs> like, it's that simple. It's so, like, people are like, guys are so hard to buy for. No, no we're not. Well, it's not that hard. It's just like, get, like it's... it's and so she did, and the next time I saw him, he's like, thank you. <laughs> and then women are like, well, I don't know what gun to get him. If he likes guns, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. What if he already has it? Can I just, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. But when I, in my family, when um, my brother and I turned 16, my parents got us our first very own, like, deer hunting rifle. And so I kind of continued the tradition on for my boys, and guns are a gift that keeps giving. They do. They just keep, because here, here's the thing. They don't depreciate. Guys, I'm like really helping you guys out right now. Like I'm just like, but here's the thing. So that my parents bought me a deer rifle when I was 16. And I know some of you are like, well, what is it? It was a Remington 7600 carbine pump. If you know guns, you knew 7600 was a pump. Some of you like, some of you like have no idea. I'm sorry. Just hang in there. We'll get out of this. Like, is this really that redneck of a church? Yeah, it is. And, um, 
and the 30-06, and uh, it is a gift that keeps giving. Now, I was hoping this would work out. Yesterday, I was hunting in New York. It was the first day of rifle season, and that gift gave one more time, and I ate its heart this morning, but um, <laughs> it was beating yesterday. It's in my belly this morning. The Holy Spirit did tell Peter to rise, kill, and eat. So yesterday at 4.45, I rose, and I went out. You're welcome. But salvation, the grace of God that is amazing, is a gift that keeps giving. It's a gift that just keeps giving. So read with me Ephesians 2, verse 8, 9, and 10. For by grace... You have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Point number one, very simple. We're saved by grace. Saved by grace. We are saved by grace. Grace alone. Uh, there's nothing else. It's a cross plus what? Plus what? Nothing. The cross plus nothing. We're saved by grace. Now, what is grace? God's unmerited favor towards us. It's his benevolence, his kindness towards us. Giving to us what we do not deserve. Salvation, forgiveness, adoption, redemption, justification. All those things that we do not deserve. We are saved solely because God has chosen by his great love for us to set his favor upon us. And in his grace, he saved us. Now he did that. Not because of anything that we've done, not because of a right theology, not because of right living, not because, because it, if you read earlier in Ephesians 2, he says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead. If he saved us while we were dead, does a dead man have any, any ability to merit life? No, none. So we're saved by grace. If you are saved, if you're a Christian, it's by grace and that alone, nothing else. Uh, we're saved from the wrath of God. Ephesians 2, verse 3, it says that prior to salvation, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What does it mean, children of wrath? That means prior to the grace of God being poured out upon us, until prior to the time of our salvation, we were by nature children of wrath. That means the wrath of God was upon us, was for us for eternity, uh, for anyone who dies apart from the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. The wrath. So we need saved from the wrath of God. Uh, so often we say, like, are you saved? Well, saved from what? Like, we need to understand what we're being saved from. If God's grace is the thing that saves us, what are we being saved from? We're being saved from the wrath of God. We were, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, God's wrath, must see this, is tied to his holiness. You can't separate God's holiness and his wrath. His wrath is going to be poured out on human on on all who 
who reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. Romans 1 actually tells us that his wrath is already being poured out on our culture and society and our nation. If you look at what it says in Romans 1, it talks about the digression of society is actually just the fact that that society and culture is under a curse and under the wrath of God. And so when we see the digression of our culture doing debased things, doing what ought not to be done, that is actually a sign that we already are under the wrath of God. But not in the sense that will be for all who die apart from Jesus Christ. There is a wrath in hell that is yet to have been seen by humanity on this earth. God's wrath is tied to his holiness. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned. All have sinned. That means we violated God's holiness. For all have sinned. Um, Romans 6.23, and the wages of sin is death. That is separation from the, the love and the grace and the mercy and the benevolence of God for eternity. That the wages of sin is death. Now, spiritual death, but also physical death is the result of sin. Prior to sin, there was going to be no physical death. But now because of sin, there is physical death. But what it's talking about here, the wages of sin is death, is talking about eternal Death separated from the presence and the love and the benevolence of God in a literal hell under the wrath of God. Romans 3, Romans 3, 24 and 25 says this, well, verse 23 says, For all have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God, but we are justified by his grace. What does it mean to be justified? Declared legally free from the penalty of your sin. We are justified by his grace. Again, we're saved by grace. The only thing that justifies us is his grace. And again, this word justification is a theological term. It just means we have been legally declared free from the penalty of our sin. And that is really good news. All justified by his grace as a gift. Again, it's not merited. It's not earned. It's a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to receive by faith. Now this word propitiation this is an important word. It uh, just means that Jesus satisfied the wrath of God on behalf of all who would trust in him for salvation. He became our propitiation. That means he satisfied the wrath of God for me. Like, think about that. Jesus became the person who would satisfy God's wrath that was intended for me for violating his holiness. And I can only receive that by grace. We've been saved by grace. It's only Jesus who can satisfy the justice of God for us. Because we have all sinned, it's too late. You're like, well, I'm going I'm to live really righteous from here on out. No, it's too late. And your righteousness is as a filthy rag before the Lord, it says. Like, so, so we are only justified and saved by grace. God doesn't love us. Listen to this. God doesn't love us because Jesus died for us. Jesus died for us because God loves us. For while we were dead in our sins, because of the great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in our sins, Jesus came, lived and died for us. See, 
what's between us and the wrath of God is the cross of Christ. If the cross is not between you and the, like if, if, if you have not gone to the cross and trusted in that, then you are still under the wrath of God. There's nothing between you. It's only the cross. And so for me to stand before a holy God, like the only thing that I know that will appease and justify me before the holiness of God is the cross of Christ. That's it. Nothing I've done. We're saved by grace and not alone. And I love this. In verse 8, he says, you have been saved. Saved. That's past tense. It's happened. You've been saved. If you're a Christian, you're saved. It's past tense. It's happened. It's secure. It's eternal. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have what? Eternal life. And secure because God loves and He saved us, saved by grace. It's God's kindness, His unmerited favor, His benevolence towards us. You know why our salvation is secure? Because it's a gift that keeps giving. He's justified us, He's forgiven us our sins past, present, and future. Saved by grace. Number two, saved through faith. Okay, saved by grace. This is important. Through faith, not by faith. Saved by grace through faith. Okay, so big, big, you must, that just means, again, this is not your doing. Now, is the gift he's talking about here, it says it's a gift of God. We're saved by grace. Um, Saved by grace. Through faith, it's not your own doing, it is the gift of God. What is the gift of God here? Is it salvation? Certainly. Is it his grace? Certainly. Would even the faith to believe be a gift? I believe you can't separate that out. It's all said in the same sentence. It's all the same line of thinking. So it's even the faith we're saved by by grace through faith. It's all a gift. You did nothing to deserve it. I personally believe, firmly convicted, that even the faith to believe is started by God's grace, Him opening our eyes to see our desperate need of salvation. Faith is this it's resting. In the promises of God, it's trusting fully in the finished work of Jesus Christ. I have faith that what Jesus did for me over 2,000 years ago on a cross and by coming out of the grave, I have faith that that satisfied the wrath of God on my behalf. Uh, It's not my faith that saves me. It's it's whom my faith is in. Does does it make sense? Like, it's not my faith. It's what my faith is in. We're saved by grace through faith. Faith isn't the thing that merits salvation. Faith simply receives what God has offered us through Christ. Faith is a firm belief in the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel means good news. The good news. The good news of what? Well, there's bad news. And we already talked it. We will all sin. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. That's the bad news. The good news, the gospel, 
Jesus, what he's done for me. He came, God in flesh, and lived the life that you were intended, that I was intended, fulfilled the law of God perfectly. He goes, he suffers our shame, he dies our death, absorbs the wrath of God on our behalf, goes into the grave, three days later rises from the dead bodily, victorious over Satan's in hell and death for us. And the good news is that for those who put their faith, hope, and trust in that finished work, they will be saved. And whoever rejects it will not be. But we're saved by faith, or by the gospel, or by the grace through faith. So we say it this way, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Do you hear that? We're saved by grace alone. It's only grace. By grace alone, through faith, in Christ alone. See what it is? It's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone alone. And we believe that. That's the gospel. Faith isn't something that saves us. It's the one who we have faith in. It's Jesus, the gospel. We're not saved by faith. We're saved through it. Hebrews 11 verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith Faith is the certainty of God's promises. My faith is in the certainty that I believe. Whoever confesses with their mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believes in the heart that God will, has raised him from the dead will be saved. I have faith in that certain promise. Saved by grace, saved through faith. Number three, saved as a gift. Saved as a gift. There it is again, right in verse eight. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. This is not something you have done. Okay, it's, it's not your doing. It's Christ's doing. It's, it's not your doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Like, can you imagine if we were saved by works? The arrogance? The, I mean, most of us struggle with pride enough, right? Right? Just, right? I mean, I, 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 honestly, I believe the accusation of pride could be made of every person. In some way, it just looks different. Mine shows up different in my life than it shows up in your life. But we see that we are saved as a gift so that no one may boast. If, if, if there was anything that I had done to merit salvation, what would I boast in? What I had done. So why Paul says, I boast in this. What did he boast? What did Paul boast in? What was it? The cross. The cross of Christ. I boast in the cross. I preach the cross. Paul was like, he had every reason to boast. I mean, he knew the Old Testament. He was a student of the law. He had been through more, gone through more. He has sacrificed more. But he says, like, I count all of those things as rubbish. It's like nothing. I boast in Christ. And so no matter where we are at in our lives, what we've done, what we haven't done, We all have the same thing to boast in the cross of Christ, not in anything that I've done because my salvation is a gift. It's a gift. You didn't merit it. You didn't earn it. It's a gift. It's not earned. It's not a prize. It's not a reward. But here's what happens. 
I think sometimes what the enemy does, he creeps in to our minds, to our thoughts, and he kind of gets us to begin to compare ourselves to other people. And we begin to measure ourselves by other people and begin to feel better about ourselves. And all of a sudden, that pride creeps in. And we begin to, well, I am more moral than they are. I haven't done what they've done. You see, it's not about that. Because if it is, then we begin to boast. We begin to do exactly that. It's a gift. It's a gift. Uh, the grace is a gift. The faith is a gift. It's all a gift. You're not so much more intelligent than someone else. As a matter of fact, if you look at Scripture, it looks like God delights in saving foolish people. I have to laugh at myself because I think that's why I'm up here half the time. It's like, don't think too high of yourself. He actually takes the simple. And um, for those of you who don't know, it took me two tries at first grade. Because at the end of my first year of first grade, I couldn't say my ABCs. And I know some of you are like, my kid can say them at four. I couldn't say them at seven. <laughs> Who cares? <laughs> it's a gift, not by works. But here's what the enemy does. He switches it. He switches it up on us. We believe that we've been saved by grace and then kept by works. It's not how it is. You're saved by grace. You're kept by grace. You finish by grace through faith as a gift. It's all a gift. Galatians 2.16, Paul writing to the church in Galatia who was messing up the gospel they were adding things in, the cross plus Judaism, the cross plus their additions to the Old Testament law. And he says this, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith. Person is not justified, is not declared legally free from the penalty of sin by works of the law. They're not. The works of the law can do nothing to justify you. Nothing at all. They don't add. They don't, they don't keep you. It's only by grace through faith as a gift. It's a gift. Here's the reality, though. If you think you can keep the law, we've all broken them. We've all broken one of the laws. All, every one of us has broken some aspect of the law, the moral law. Thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt not lie. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Then Jesus goes on and says, but if you've looked at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery. So you see what I'm saying? Like we've all, do not dishonor your parents. Like we've all broken at least one of them. The majority of us have broken many of them. But here's the thing. Even if you've broken one, James says you're guilty of all of them. James 2, 16, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point has become guilty of all of it. So if you've lied, you're guilty of all of it. If you've coveted, you're guilty of all of it. There is no way that you can justify yourself by works of the law. Uh, 
Like, again, Galatians 2.16, he says that we know that we are not justified by works of the law. Now, this is important. I think a lot of times people don't understand the Old Testament law. Now, there's three types of law in the Old Testament. There was the judicial law. There was the laws that God gave to the nation of Israel to govern themselves in that time. Okay. There was the ceremonial laws. The ceremonial laws were the laws that were given to govern uh, the Jews' worship, the Hebrew people's worship. Okay. When Christ became the sacrifice for sins, the ceremonial laws were done away with. Under the new covenant, we're, not, we're no longer under their judicial laws. But the moral law, the thou shalt not, was given to all of mankind. But you need to understand what the moral law was given for. Now, there's three types of laws. There's three reasons the moral law was given. The first reason the moral law was given, the thou shalt not, is to reveal to us that we need a savior. Right? They, they reveal to us that I'm in trouble. I'm in deep trouble. And they should drive us to Christ. The second reason the moral law was given is to restrain evil, to, to merit out some, some sense of justice. And the third reason the moral law was given for us as Christians is to know how we ought to live to please God. His moral law works. It brings blessing, right? It brings blessing. Now, but here's the thing. But as soon as I said that, you're like, okay, I'm going to please God so he saves me. No, you can't please him enough because you've already broken it. You're already under the wrath of God forever unless you go to the cross of Christ and allow Jesus to absorb the wrath of God on your behalf because it's a gift. And what happens Legalism creeps into the church so quickly. If for anybody who's been saved any length of time, I'm telling you, legalism will creep in. I've got to do these things now so I'm more righteous. Yes, holy living. We are called to holy living. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. But we only stand before a holy God in the imputed righteousness of Christ. Anything that I bring... Before a holy God is like a filthy rag. That's what the prophet Isaiah said. But here's a problem. Sam Storm says this, Legalism is a tendency to regard as divine law things that God has neither required or forbidden. And then to look at others with suspicion for the failure or refusal to conform. You know what I just said? Here's what happens. There's things that God's word calls us to do, like very clearly. An example is like says to be modest. Scripture says very clearly that it is a biblical concept, it's a biblical teaching that we should live in modesty. What is that? The Bible doesn't tell us what it is. Now, I have a conviction and an opinion on what it is. And so do you. But I almost guarantee you ours aren't the same. So who's right? And what happens is we begin to impose on others our convictions. And then we hold, we look at them with suspicion or contempt if they don't hold the same values that I do. See? And when that creeps into the church, we immediately begin to lose focus on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it becomes about these other things. 
and we judge others and we think we're more righteous because we have a higher standard than they do. Well, who said yours is right? And who said your attitude's any better than their... See what I'm saying? It's a gift. It's a gift. You know, in John 9, there's a story where Jesus healed a, bl a man born blind. John 9, 1 through 7. He healed a man born blind. and We were talking about this in the office the other day. And when he healed this man who was born blind, Jesus, remember he spit in the dirt and made mud. And he put it on the, boy, in the, on the man's eyes. Now, did Jesus need to spit in the mud to heal him? Come on, did he need to do that? Could he just said, be healed? Sure. Why did he spit in the mud? One of the reasons. I think there was two reasons. I'll give you the second one first. The second reason was, I think, like, he wanted to reveal to us that God works through means. God works through practical things. Like, now, mud doesn't, <laughs> practical? Hey, it's what he had. Here, but I think here's the primary reason. It broke one of the Jewish, not God's law, it broke one of their Sabbath laws. It was a law that on the Sabbath you couldn't need bread or you couldn't make mud. You couldn't make, and he made mud. Breaking, confronting their religiosity. But how often do we judge people the same way that the Pharisees judged Jesus because he didn't adhere to their, not God's, their standards? It's a problem. It's a massive problem in the church today. See, legalism, I'm just camping out here for a little bit. Legalism, religion, I would submit to you as one of the most grievous of all sins. See, all other sins, this is a quote, all other sins deny the sin or the cross. Legalism acknowledges the cross. But it mocks it. Because it claims what the cross isn't, that the cross isn't enough. That we must add to the cross. That I must add to his righteousness. You must understand that you are saved as a gift. Nothing you've done. Nothing you've added. Romans 3.24, by works of the law, no human being will be justified. Titus 3.5, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Why did he do this? So we can't boast. We can only boast in the cross. We're saved by grace, through faith, as a gift. Number four, we're saved by Christ's work. There it is in verse 10. The end of it, uh, we're getting to the end of the, the set of verses. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Okay. We are, here's it. We say we're not saved by works. We're not. We're not saved by our works. You know whose works we are saved by? Go ahead. Who, whose works saved us? Christ. We're saved by what Jesus did for us. God in flesh. The incarnate word of God came, lived among us, dwelt among us, lived, fulfilled the law, lived without sin. Went to the cross, suffered and died, became our propitiation, absorbed the wrath of God on our behalf. He did all of those things. Rose victorious over Satan's in hell and death for our victory. So we could be free from the penalty of sin, free from the power of sin, and one day free from the presence of sin.
We are his workmanship. Do you remember when Jesus hanging on the cross? What did he say? It is what? It is finished. What was finished? The work. The work needed for salvation. The propitiation. All of those things that was done. What was needed for justification. But we are Christ's work. He is working in us now. He is working in us. The Holy Spirit now resides within those who have been saved by grace through faith as a gift. In Christ alone. Now he's working in us to conform us to the image of Christ. Colossians 1 verse 10. And we have put on the new self which is being renewed after the image of the creator. Now as a Christian, God is working in us. To conform us into the image of our creator. Who's our creator? Who is it? Come on. It's not a trick question. Jesus. Jesus is our creator. He's conforming us now as Christians to the image of our creator. So that is why someone who is a a Christian. Someone who's only been a Christian for a minute. Or someone who's been a Christian for a hundred years. Let's back it up because you're like, well, no one lives out like that. I know some of you, the math just messed you up. Someone who's been a Christian for 75 years, they're both justified equally. The one who's been a Christian for a minute is no less justified than the one who's been a Christian for 75 years. But there should be a marked difference in their sanctification, being conformed to the image of Christ. Does that make sense? So we are his workmanship. We are his workmanship. He's conforming us after the image of our creator. Galatians 6 verse 15. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. What counts is that I'm a new creation. Not because of anything I've done, but because what he is doing in me. That's what counts. We are his workmanship. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The works that saved us was Christ's work. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the old has passed away and the new has come. Now, am I perfectly who I ought to be? No. Are you completely new like you ought to be? No. But here's my question. Are you a different person than you were six months or six years ago? I am. I know many of you, like you're, on, you're in process, being conformed to the image of Christ, the work of Christ working within us, sanctifying us, conforming us to the image of Christ. Because that's what he is predestined to do in our lives. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for he made him, he, the father made him, the son, to be sin, who knew no sin. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of Christ. Jesus went to the cross, took on our sin, so that when we go to the cross, he will give to us his righteousness. And the only thing that allows us to be in the presence of a holy God is the fact that Jesus, by, our, by grace, through faith, in Christ, as a gift, he has justified and saved us.
nothing that I've done. And I heard Alistair Beggs do this illustration. Many of you have seen this too. But imagine on the day of Christ's crucifixion. There was two thieves and Jesus in the middle. And imagine after the thief who said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me today when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. Now imagine when that man showed up to heaven. I mean, don't you think the angels are like, what are you doing here? And Alistair goes on and, and he says, like the angels ask him, like, can you explain to us justification by faith? He's like, I never heard of it. All right, can you, can you explain to us the doctrine of Scripture? He was never baptized. He was never in a Bible study. He never did anything. And the angel said, why are you here? Because the man in the middle said I could come. That's it. That's it, church. Some of you believe it here, but you don't believe it here. And when it moves from here to here, it will radically change your life. Because we are fallen by nature and we still live in our sin. We're free from the penalty. I'm being free from the power, but I'm still in the presence of it. And so here's one of the, one of the ways that you know you understand the gospel. And you understand what I just said, I can come because the man in the middle said I can, is when you sin and when you fall short of the glory of God, the first thing you want to do is run to your father and run to the cross. And if you don't get it, you want to hide. I'm not saying you're not saved. But when you get it and it moves from here to here, it changes how you react in your moment of sin. It will change how you react in someone else's moment of sin. All of a sudden, you will become a conduit of grace and mercy when you understand that the only reason that you are righteous is because the man in the middle said you are. Church, that is incredible news. Because I can't work enough. I can't earn it. We're saved by Christ's work. And then number five, we're saved to Christ's work. The end of verse 10. In the end of verse 10, he says this. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So the reason, like one of the reasons God has created us and saved us and, and has justified and sanctified us is because he wants us to do some things now for his glory. Now, but as soon as I say that, you're like, oh, see, there it is. There, no, no, no. We're not saved by them. We're saved to them. Uh, my works do nothing, do nothing to merit or earn salvation or justification. They do nothing. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There are works that God has prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. There are works that God has prepared that you should walk in that no one else can walk in. They're yours. They're yours to walk in. But I think sometimes people refuse to walk in the works that God has laid before them, the opportunities that God has given them, 
And you know what happens? I think then God will often give those opportunities to someone else and they get the reward and blessing. We're not saved by them, we're saved to them, to Christ's work. Titus 2.14, he who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Why did God do all of this? For a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Now this word zealous. We're talking about this in the office a little bit this morning and I don't understand. I can't read Greek, but Bethany can. And she said, you know the word zealous in the Greek? It's this idea of boiling over. It's uncontrolled. Do you ever have a pot boil over and you're like trying to put the lid on it? It just keeps coming. Like that's what it means to be zealous for good works. It just can't be contained. Not begrudging. God wants that people who are zealous for good works. Now, I don't mean this to be corrective or condescending, but I think when you understand what Christ has done for you, it can't help but motivate you to the works that God has prepared for you. Zealous, boiling over. Colossians 1.10, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work. They're prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. John 15, 8. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. God has works for you to walk in, for me to walk in. Mine are different than yours. Yours are different than mine. But here's what I want you to understand. Is work hard? Not is work hard. Work's hard. Work's difficult. I don't care what you do, work is hard. Like some work is harder than other work. But people have this idea that if you're doing the works of Christ, you won't be exhausted. <laughs> what? Did you see the examples of the apostles and Christ? Some people have been peddled this bill of goods that when you become a Christian, everything will get easier. No, I would submit to you that when you become a Christian, it's about to get harder. It's about to get harder. You're going to begin to fight a battle that you never had to fight before. Now you need to lay your life down sacrificially because he's conforming us to the image of our creator. And what did he do? He laid his life down sacrificially. This idea that serving the church and serving your community shouldn't cost you is absurd. It's crazy. I, I don't know. Where, where did that come from? It's called works. It's going to be sacrificial. We're not saved by our works, but we're saved to them. Matthew 5, 16, let your light so shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Why does he want us walking in those works? Because when we walk in them, it gives glory to our Father who is in heaven. Do you hear what it just said? Let me read it for you again, Matthew 5, 16. Let your light so shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Okay. We're saved by grace. Through faith. As a gift. By Christ alone. To good works. Why? Why are we saved to good works? For his 
glory. It's about him. It's always been about him. And when that reality connects here and moves to here, it radically changes us. This morning, the way I want to close, I can't imagine that in a room this size, there aren't some here today who are still under the wrath of God, who have not trusted in Jesus Christ for, their, for the forgiveness of their sins. So church, I'm just going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. If you're here this morning and you know that you are under the wrath of God, that you have not trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond to the gospel this morning. Listen, you're not saved because of your response. Your response gives evidence, though, that you hear the Holy Spirit calling. That quickening of your heart, that quickening of your spirit. And so if you're here this morning, I'm not going to call you forward, but I want you to acknowledge that you want to be saved this morning just simply by slipping up your hand right where you are and I want to pray with you. If you were in this room this morning and you have never trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you want to do that now, would you just slip up your hand right where you are? Slip it up high so I'm sure to see it. Father, I thank you for your great love for us, for your amazing grace. I pray that the reality of the gospel, saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, would impact, would change us, would move from our heads to our hearts, and that we would go on mission, do the work that you've called us for your glory. God, you're a good God. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins, for pouring out your love upon us. Thank you for saving us sovereignly on your own work. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, have a great week, church. Be on mission in the works that God has prepared for you beforehand that you should walk in them. Have a great week, and above all, as you live your life this week, put on love. See you next week.